we're going to hone in on this one word, authenticity. It's a very now word, authenticity. Um, it was the philosopher Charles Taylor who said uh, recently, well, a few years ago in his book, A Secular Age, that when people look back at our time in history, they will describe us as the age of authenticity. This moment right now, you know, there's all the things we could be defined by, but what sums up our values and our longings more than anything in our moment in time, in, at least in the West, is authenticity. And so if that's true, and it's what defines us, um, I think it'd be worth thinking about it for a second or two, um, or 20 minutes. And uh, to do that, I want to ask four kind of big questions around authenticity. And then I'm going to kind of show you some pictures and tell you a story at the end. Um, and hopefully we'll uh, get somewhere. So the first question I want to look at is, what is authenticity and why is it important? If it's such a big deal to us, it's good to define it. And I think there are roughly two ways that our culture tends to use that word. And uh, though this is slightly extreme, I'd say one of the ways that our culture uses it, I would want to really critique, actually, and distance myself from and, and pretty much not agree with at all. And then on the other side, the, the one that I'm going to talk about, I think is so central to our human flourishing that we all need to pursue it with all we've got. And uh, so it's quite important that we know which one I'm talking about, because one I think is really good and one I think is less helpful, perhaps. So I just want to tell you the one I'm not talking about. There is a way that we use the word authenticity that would be like this. In order for me to be authentic, I need to bring out into the open and live completely out of my inner longings and yearnings and desires, whatever they might be at a given moment. And that somehow for me to have checks and balances to that or higher callings on my decision-making than my inner leanings is somehow to be inauthentic and not our true selves and not following our heart or whatever. Um, and now I, I think that kind of simply bringing out into my life everything that I sort of want in the short term um, is slightly dangerous. Uh, if uh, I came home from work on a Friday and uh, my lovely wife, Ruth, who was here earlier, uh, was to say to me, Rich, it would be really helpful. What's on my heart? is that we could do the hoovering this weekend, and maybe you could hoover the stairs. Um, and I hate hoovering the stairs because the nozzle, and it's was it going to fall down, and it's all tricky. But, uh, okay, I want you to hoover the stairs. And for me to say, Di, thank you for your authenticity. I really admire that. And um, I'm just going to be real. What's kind of on my heart is more the Six Nations rugby. Um, and uh, more Wolves versus Sheffield United was on Sky Sports 1 last night. And more, more that is really what I'm leaning towards. So, um, so no. So I'm not going to do the hoovering. Um, and if that's a problem, please just be grateful that your husband is really authentic. Right? I think that would be slightly dangerous to my physical well-being. And rightly so. Okay? Um, because sometimes there's a higher calling on us than merely our heart's longings in the moment, aren't there? So in that situation, it would be love for my wife or sort of self-protection of my physical well-being, etc. Okay? Uh, I love the cartoonist Edward Monckton. I don't know if people get any of his stationery, so like calendars and diaries and coasters and stuff. Sarcastic cartoons about life. It's great. Uh, and he says this about following your heart. Follow your heart, for your heart will always know the answer. But if it tells you to strangle kittens or something, then don't follow it anymore. I mean, it's only a heart, right? It's not the Dalai Lama, which I think is really helpful. That our, Follow your heart sounds great, but if your heart tells you to strangle kittens, like, don't. <laughs> so that if you take one thing from this talk, don't strangle kittens. That's my big point. 
So authenticity that I'm talking about isn't simply following every inner longing. Um, but there is a type of authenticity that's crucial. And I think you can sum that up in this word, uh, real. I think to be authentic is to be real. That's how I'd use it, isn't it? If I'd got a, a signature from a celebrity, an autograph, and a, a piece of memorabilia, and I brought it to you, and I said, look at this. And you said, is it authentic? You don't mean, is it living a, a lined-up life with its inner longings? You, you mean, is it real? Is it what you have said it to be? What you have presented it to me as, is that, does that match up with what it really is? Uh, or is it a fraud, a counterfeit, a copy, a mirage, whatever? And I think that's how we're to live as human beings. And I think that's how we're to seek to increasingly live as human beings, that, that, that we would be real, that what we would uh, present to the world would be very closely related to what is real about us. And I think that's crucial for two reasons. Uh, firstly, because authenticity, being real, is central to deep relationships. And that matters because deep relationships are central to our flourishing, to my flourishing, to your flourishing as a human being. So let's just look at those in turn. Uh, authenticity is central to deep relationships. Uh, I don't know how many of you would say you are in a deep relationship or how many deep relationships you feel that you are in, be they friendships or, um, or family relationships or romantic relationships or whatever. Um, I don't know how you would define a deep relationship. Just have a think about that. When sort of preparing for this talk, I came across a few definitions, but I really love this one. I think this is very helpful. That a deep relationship is one in which I'm increasingly being known and being loved. And those two things go together in a deep relationship. As I say, not simply in a romantic sense, but in, in a friendship or whatever. Being known and being loved. Being really known and really loved. And can you see then that authenticity, being real, is central to a deep relationship? Because if we're to be really known, it has to be the real us, right? And therefore, we should be authentic. It's not just the cry of millennials who haven't got anything better to do. Or we should be authentic. It's not just kind of emotionally unstable people like me sometimes sort of going, oh, I haven't got, but at least I'm authentic. It's not just that. It's absolutely central to any deep relationship that we increase in how real we are. Think of the, uh, is ready for a contemporary illustration, everybody? Think of the uh, 1990s TV show, Blind Date, everybody. Come on. Yeah, it's been a while. Um, Blind Date, there she is. Um, and Blind Date, if you ever saw it, or um, YouTube is your friend in this moment, go and look it up after. Uh, there are three people who come out and sit on the one side of a large barrier, okay? And then on the other side is one person, and they chat to find out which of the three the one is going to go on a date with. And they ask all sorts of awkward questions, like if you were a chocolate bar, what would you be? And, you know, ugh. And they chat. And then two of them get sort of defeated in the process, and there's just the one winner. And they're sort of ready. In the finale of the show, they've made it. Now, what is the finale of that show? What's the crescendo moment in Blind Date? When they go on a date. That is true. What happens just before that? <laughs> they remove the barrier. Yeah, they remove the barrier. Okay. 
Because sitting in a relationship on either side of a massive fence is a form of relating. It is. They, they chatted. They learned that, you know, she was a Milky Way because she's out of this world or whatever it is. You know, they, they chatted, but they didn't get a deep relationship. And it's when... <laughs> Come back. <laughs> and again. It's when barriers are moved in relationships that depth of relationship can go further, right? And that's why being real is crucial to deep relationships. Because if you've got a big old wall up, you're limiting your, your depth of relationship there. And now, why is that important? Why do we care about, about deep relationships? You might say, I'm, I'm fine, thanks. Um, well, deep relationships are actually central to, to who we are and how we flourish as people. I'm not saying that just as a Christian, though I think the Bible would back that up. Everybody, uh, psychology, sociology, history, biology, would all agree that as human beings, there's been a lot of visions of the good life over the centuries, but, but it's always involved us being connected, being together. Okay, Whether we're introverts or extroverts, uh, romantically involved or not, being together in deep relationships is absolutely in our DNA. Uh, no man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main, as John Don said, not talking about Brexit, and neither are we. But no man is an island. No one can flourish cut off. Uh, That's why the first negative statement in the Bible, after a massive roll call of positivity and uh, positive declarations by God that the earth is good, the heavens are good, the moon is good, the stars are good, the plants are good, the bees are good, the mountains are good, and people are good at that point, and then it's not good, first time that comes in the Bible, it's not good for humanity to be defined by an experience of aloneness. It's not saying it's not good to be single, Jesus was the most fulfilled human being who walked the earth, and he was never, ever, ever on a date. But he was absolutely connected. He had deep relationships. And it's not good to be without those. It's why we've got a minister for loneliness that we've just announced. Uh, not in the church, sorry. That's not like a job title. Congratulations, you know. <laughs> um, the government has a minister for loneliness uh, announced uh, recently. It's a huge social problem. And uh, solitary confinement is not the good bit of prison. Uh, It's the bad bit because even in prison, being cut off from relationship is is awful. Uh, Peter Leithart, the theologian, said it like this. Humans connect to other humans at so basic a level that when we disconnect, our souls shatter into a thousand little pieces. So why do we long for authenticity? It's because being real, getting that barrier up and seeing one another as we really are is central to deep relationships and they are central to our experience as human beings. Now, second question, how does that explain our experiences with social media? Now, I think what we've said so far explains both the positives and the negatives of social media and why we're drawn to it and why we're disappointed by it. Think positively, we are drawn to social media because you and I are made for relationship and connection and social media 
is a form of relationship. It is. It is, and that's good. This is not a feel guilty for being on Facebook talk. It's a good thing to connect with one another. That was the big vision of Facebook, to connect friends and family more. And that's a good idea. And so it's a good thing. I'm able to keep in touch with my friends more than I ever could. I tag my family in transfer window, deadline day, football stuff, and we bond over it when I wouldn't see them for two weeks ordinarily. But then actually I can sort of keep it up. And and I share funny things and, um, you know, the video of the year with that woman, that girl walking into the interview. And it's just funny and it just makes my day more exciting. And, and that's good. That's not bad. That's good. And that's why I'm drawn to it. But we're disappointed by it as well because it's only a form of relationship. It just isn't designed to bear the weight of your human longings connection. It never was. That's not saying that you're misusing it. That's just a fact. It, it could never do that. Now, I like to think of it like this. People often describe social media as the new village green or the new town square, sort of a place where you go to connect and rub shoulders with other people and ideas and trading and have my fruit and I'll have your sheep and, you know, stuff. And we just do life together as we bustle and bustle with people. And I I get that analogy. I think that's not quite right. I think the closer analogy is that social media is like the village notice board where real people genuinely go to write things about them or things that are going on or to make announcements or you'd be interested in this, I think, so I'm putting it in this central place that we can see. It's a good thing, isn't it? The village notice board is not evil. (laughs) It's a great idea. It's only a form of relationship, though. And for the person who's in the village staring at the notice board all day, that doesn't lead to a flourishing village. It's a means to a flourishing village, perhaps. But it isn't able to bear the weight of our expectations. And, and why not? Why can't it do that for all its, uh, all its good things? I think there are several barriers in between us on Facebook. The fact that we're not physically present, uh, the fact that uh, blah, blah, there's, there's hundreds of ways in which the, the medium of social media work against deep connection. But I think the biggest one, it came through a little bit in the interviews, and again, I want to be really clear, this is not a critique of how anyone's using it. It's simply a fact that social media is selected reality projected reality, edited reality. It isn't real reality. And you say, I, I'm really real on Facebook. I, I, I put all the good and all the bad. I say, that's, that's good. That's, that's probably a good thing. But that in itself is still selected good and bad. Even those of us, and I'm prone to this, to splurge everything on Facebook. It's, I, I only splurge what I want to splurge. <laughs> it's still selected and projected. And that means I'm very tempted often to, to edit out the untidy or the unnewsworthy or the the unimpressive, or just the dull, or the the wrong. And I want to be seen in this projection. Now, I think there's some images which explain this better than me. Um, Check this out for a good social media image. You want some likes, get something like that up. Good laptop, little globe, I think. Uh, Pine cones. I mean, you know, you're sort of on a Mac, but you're sort of at one with nature. It's amazing, isn't it? Okay, so look what was going on outside of the shot. Okay, it's a form of relationship. It's a form of reality. But it isn't real reality. Next shot. Uh, 
you know, great kind of desert island, you know, secluded, peaceful moment in the wind, um, except for the person taking the photo, which we never think about. Um, and then all of those guys as well, who were probably just in the way for the previous 11 attempts at that photo. Um, and then the final one is my favorite. I mean, that is incredible, isn't it? I mean, you know what's coming, don't you? Okay. There we go. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of reality, and it functions in a way, and it's good. But it leads us down projection and editing and um, selecting which bits we want to share. And that's not evil, but it is limited. It is limited. Uh, Stephen March, the journalist, puts it like this. I think uh, I relate to his words. It's a lonely business. It was meant to be social media. <laughs> but it's a lonely business. Wandering the labyrinths of our friends and pseudo-friends, projected identities, trying to figure out what part of ourselves we ought to project, who will listen, and what they'll hear. And this leads me to kind of one very bit of tentative, nervous, no, I need to work on it myself, not judging anyone, trying my best, we're all on a journey, bit of social media advice, uh, which is a little scary to do. I think healthy social media users acknowledge the limitations of social media. Healthy social media use is to enjoy social media as a form of connection, but not to try and substitute it for real-life connection. To use it, if I could be so um, kind of uh, bold as to bring up a, an item of uh, technology from the past, to use it like a telephone, as a means by which you supplement, check in with, do some light-hearted maintenance work or some emergency short-term care on relationships that are not solely based on the phone but are real too. It's not a substitute for real relationship. Now, if this is true, and um, we laugh at these pictures because they're so perfectly framed and tweaked, and, and yet we all kind of do it, I want to ask, why do we find it so hard to be authentic? Why do we find it so uncomfortable? Why do we find it, it quite challenging if I was to say, right now, everything that you've ever thought is on the screen? It's quite a tricky thing to be seen as real. <laughs> I think there's two reasons that we find it hard, or I find it hard. Because we're flawed and because we're fearful. If there were no dark corners in me, I would be happy to be real with you. If everything in me was unendingly lovable, I am on display. Come and tell me. <laughs> if everything in me was, was, uh, was kind of interesting and godly, then fine, I'll be real, but I'm not like that. And my friend always used to say this. It's quite a helpful description of a human being. We are messy mixtures of sin and grace of good and bad, of ups and downs, of lovely and unlovely, of lovable and unlovable. And we know that. And because of that, we're then fearful. Because if you think of a deep relationship, remember that being known and being loved. But then in being known, I'm flawed. I'm very fearful I'm not going to be loved. <laughs> That if you saw the real me, 
then I wouldn't be in a deep relationship. I'd be rejected, actually, because I'm not as interesting and not as funny and not as snazzy as I want to be. And as I want you to think I am. And so I'm very tempted to shy away from being real. It's like we've got two options in our relationships. We have either shame or superficiality. For me to be in a relationship of shame is where I'm known, you see it all. <laughs> but I'm not loved, I'm rejected or ignored or, or not liked. <laughs> and that's shame and that's horrible. That's a really horrible feeling. So rightly to protect ourselves from shame, we go for the other option, which hurts a lot less. And that's where we go superficial. We go, I want to be loved, fully loved. So I'm just not going to be quite fully known. And that's just superficial. I'm going to share enough of me with you that keeps us loving one another. But if I was to show you the rest, (laughs) it would all go to pot. So I'm going to stay shallow in the shallow waters with you. Shame superficiality. I don't know about you. I think it would be fantastic that if, if that wasn't our only option in life. If there was more than living fearful of being rejected or feeling like we could never really be ourselves. I'd love there to be another option. Question four, final question. What if we could be fully known and fully loved at the same time? What if there was a way that I could be who I really am right now, unfiltered, and met with unblinking, uncringing love for the real me? Now, that would be universe-shaking. I want to just tell you about Jesus for a second. Now, I haven't got any time for religion. Because I think religion in general tends to lean towards social media on a cosmic scale, whereby there's an audience scrolling how you're doing, and you show the filtered stuff and the, 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 the good highlights of your morality or whatever it might be, and, and you say, be my friend, and, and God hovers over the button, maybe, maybe not, maybe accept or reject depending on how good you look, and that's I've not got any time for that. I feel that's just a bigger version of shame versus superficiality. I'm either annoyed at how much he must hate me, or I'm basically pretending. Let me tell you about Jesus. Jesus met a woman once. She was a a messy mix of sin and grace. She was a mix of dark and light, of, of love and hate, of good and bad, and she was tired She's tired from the heat. It's the middle of the day. The heat is scorching down on her, beating down on her. And she's tired from the heat, but she's more tired from bouncing between shame and superficiality. And she's absolutely shattered and weary. She's on the floor and she's thirsty. And Jesus of Nazareth, just what you want when you're tired from life. Some religious bloke walks up to you, ready to have a rant at you. And you think, oh, God. And and Jesus of Nazareth walks up to her. And even in that culture, which is so built on men and women don't kind of interact like that, and religious people and non-religious people don't really interact, he goes straight to her. And he goes, where's your husband? And she sort of squirms a bit and says, oh, I don't have a husband. He says, I know. And then in the broad daylight, he brings it all out. He says, I know you don't. And I know that the person you're living with right now is not your husband. Shocking in that culture. And he says, and I know that you've had five husbands before, and I know. And that is she's fully known. 
And she's just, I mean, what must have that felt like? You, you, you went to the well at lunchtime to get a break from everyone looking at you. And then this guy's brought it all out and he's just, there it is. And you've got nowhere to hide. And she sort of mumbles something to sort of stall for time. And then Jesus says three words to her. The next three words to her after she has been fully known by him. Or not, uh, get yourself sorted. Or come back later. Not good enough. Do you know what his next three words are? My dear woman. He starts his next sentence. This woman, I mean, what is it? Is she, is she done loads of wrong or has loads of wrong been done to her? We don't know. Probably both. And he knows it all. And his eyes see it all straight away. You cannot hide from his eyes. And yet those eyes to her, the real her was dear to him. He loved her. He loved the real her. And do you know what she did? You know how you would feel if I said, I know everything you've ever done. <laughs> do you know what she does? She runs back to her town and probably gets laughed at for this, but somehow she doesn't care because she's got a poise about being authentic now. She runs back to the town and she shouts and sings for joy. I met a man who told me everything I ever did. And it's a good thing. <laughs> Because when you're really known and really loved, come at me, world. Indestructible. And I think that's where we find authenticity. That when the biggest eyes of all that see everything, and they do, you can't hide a thing. Everything that's on the cutting room floor of your Instagram posts, he sees. And he loves you. That you. And the more that we live with that relationship defining us, the more that we live in an awareness of that love, we don't need to chase likes because we have the biggest like (laughs) for the real us.